Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 here this morning. And as you open there, I want to just start with this question. How do you respond when you feel attacked? How do you respond when you feel attacked? I was listening to a pastor this week, and and he pointed me to a couple of the illustrations that you're going to hear here this morning. But one was an article written in June of 2013 by a man named Mark Bowden, and and the article is titled this, Idiot, Yahoo, Original Gorilla, How Lincoln Was Dissed in His Day. Isn't that a great title? I'd read that. I did read that, actually, after reading the title. Um, But he's talking about Abraham Lincoln, right? And as we look back on Abraham Lincoln's legacy from today, we probably have a lot of warm fuzzies, positive uh, impact of Abraham Lincoln's presidency on our nation, right? It's not necessarily how he was viewed in his time. Let me read you a couple quotes. George Strong, a New York lawyer and writer, says, He is either a barbarian, a Scythian, a Yahoo, or a gorilla. Okay, got that. General George McClellan, his own commanding general, while he was the commanding general, says he was a coward, an idiot, and the original gorilla. Gorilla motif, kind of weird, right? He was six foot five, big for the day, kind of hairy. Maybe that's where it's coming from. Senator Zachary Chandler, member of his own party, says he is timid, vacillating, and inefficient. Member of his own party. But maybe the Gettysburg Address kind of covered all that, right? Because we've all memorized that in school, four school or seven years ago, right? We, we know that. So that, that covered a multitude of sins. They changed their tune at that point, right? <laughs> Pennsylvania, northern newspaper says, We pass over the silly remarks of the president. To the credit of the nation, we are willing that the veil of oblivion shall be dropped over them, and they shall no more be thought of or repeated. Okay, a London Times correspondent says, anything more dull and commonplace would not be easy to produce. Some newspapers after that actually called for his assassination. And we know that that is actually how Abraham Lincoln's life ended. Lincoln says at one point during his presidency, I would rather be a dead man than as a president be thus abused in the house of my friend. It was hard for the president, right? Friends, in many ways, that's the cost of leadership in a world at war. That's what Abraham Lincoln faced. And what's funny is, is today, and I've heard it said, oh, the political world is so terrible, it's never been this bad. (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun, my friends. And even if you go beyond the presidency, we see it everywhere in our culture today, don't we? read an article about medical officers across the nation who are resigning because of death threats that are posted on social media about them. Because they made decisions based on the data they had and and what have you, but people on Facebook and whatnot said, hey, one of us should go over and shoot up their house. And somebody said, I will pull the trigger on one. We're maligned in any form of leadership. Maybe not to that degree, but pastors face it. Managers face it. School administrators right now are certainly facing it. Teachers are facing it. Parents face it. Leadership is hard. The cost of leadership in a world where there is attack is that strong decisions, sometimes that need to be clear and concise without all the data coming at us, yield deep passions in people. And the reality is, is fools then attack and disparage and slander. 
And that's exactly what our brother Paul was facing in Corinth. As we jump into the text today, we see Paul, sarcastically speaking, of just such attacks from the super-apostles. If you read 11.5, this is a group in Corinth who was diametrically opposed to Paul. They hated his guts. They were turning the church in Corinth against him. And we get to see his response today, or at least in part. We've seen it throughout this book, but we get to see it in a more nuanced way today. And, and for us, I think this is important to pay attention to because we, like Paul, like Abraham Lincoln, continue to live in a world at war because human nature has not changed. Still marked by sin. Still prone to respond foolishly. The good news is, is nor has our God. Our God has not changed either in that. And what Paul says about our God today is what I think we need to tune our ears to because what I would propose to you is that our default, my default, and your default as sinful men and women, is that when war is waged against us, we respond with a show of force, with the same character assassination, with angry words in self-defense. How would Paul tweak our thinking today? So let me pray for us as we get rolling, uh, and we'll dig into God's Word. Lord, um, my prayer even for myself as I come is that I preach the words that Paul writes are the same words that are in my heart that I would preach with the gentleness and meekness of Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that as we live in a world that feels at war, that you would make all of our hearts open to your grace and your mercy and your correction. So Holy Spirit, speak in and through me, apply your words to us, all of us, myself included, Make us to look less like the world and more like your son and your name. Amen. All right, so as we dive in, here's, here's the one uh, kind of hinge that all of this uh, turns on. Uh, I know I'm not saying the right phrases there, but verse 4, Paul is basically saying, in light of these attacks from the apostles, in light of their power grabs, because that's what it is when we attack somebody, we are trying to place ourselves in a position of power over another person for whole sorts of reasons, to regain control, to regain comfort, whatever that may be. But as Paul is facing this in verse 4, he's saying, this war I wage, I battle with weapons of divine power, the power of God. And so even in his response to these super apostles, he's taking the camera off of himself and he's putting it on God. In verse 17, if you skip down, uh, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul, at the outset of this passage, is saying, this is not about me. Their attacks are not about me. In fact, I'm going to rest in the one who truly possesses the power. And so, if you're a Christian and you're watching or in this room, one thing that we do need to do business with as a follower of Christ is the unequivocal statement of Scripture that God says, I am the most all-powerful in the universe, period, full stop. Genesis 1, he spoke all things out of nothing by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 17, Jesus Christ by his power is holding everything together. And what we see throughout scripture is that power uh, in God's grace gets turned outward towards those who place their faith in him. We see in Romans 1, 16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, that word is dunamis, think dynamite, of God for salvation to everyone 
who believes. Acts 1.8. God says you will receive power, that same word, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is that idea of a demonstration of supernatural ability. So God is not just this megalomaniac keeping all power to himself, but he is using it in a benevolent way to change the hearts of broken-down sinners by grace. We see another version of this power with this term authority. Jesus in the Great Commission, before he commissions the disciples, he says all authority, exousia is the term there, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is that idea of the authority to rule. And so, in short, and this is a study that we could spend several sermons on, but but God is basically saying, I am the all-powerful one, and I benevolently turn my power towards sinful human beings by grace to change them for my purposes, for my glory. Now, the term power used in our culture makes us really nervous, doesn't it? I mean, what have we done over the last few months but sit and watch image after image across the board in many different settings of abuses of power. And part of the battle for followers of Christ is we spend our whole lives correcting what the world would lie to us and tell us is true of God and and correct it with God's word through his spirit of God saying, this is how I want you to view me as I am. See, God is not a megalomaniac up there abusing his power. In fact, Uh, If we pay attention to even where we've been in this last several weeks in this book, we see in chapter 5, verse 20, the the sinless laid his life down so that the sinful could have his righteousness. Last week we saw uh, Jesus, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that we by his poverty may become rich. And so do not superimpose upon God's character what we see in the world because that would be a wrongful read and understanding of who the triune God is. Here's what I would say is that, uh, and what will thrust us through the rest of this passage, is that our understanding of God's benevolent, good, just power towards us and working through us impacts the way we respond to the world when war is waged against us, and it helps us understand the appropriate wars to wage ourselves. So our understanding of God's benevolent power towards us in His grace helps inform how we respond when war is waged against us, and it also informs the wars we are actually called to wage, and it's quite different than what we see all around us. So first, when war is waged against us, and follow along with me in your text now in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Paul says this, he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, here's what we need to understand to understand this uh, war that's been waged against Paul is the second half of verse 1 is sarcasm where he says, I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. That is sarcasm referring to verse 10 of this chapter, but he's talking about the super-apostles' claim against Paul, where they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. They're basically saying, hey, Paul writes all big, but he's hiding behind his pen. When he gets before us, he's kind of short, he's kind of ugly, he has a speech impediment, he's not real good on his feet, unlike us. You see, we'll get to this in a minute, but the super apostles believed that um, oration and, and authoritarian power and a good pedigree 
is, is the weapons that they wage, and they basically say, hey, if you look like us and sound like us, then you must have the favor of God upon you. But Paul, he doesn't quite look and sound that way. In fact, because of that, he's probably walking according to the flesh. Now, what that term essentially means, the flesh, this is a big concept, but to put it very simply, the flesh is the stuff that humankind is born into that we have with us that is opposed to God. For those who have not placed their faith in Christ, Scripture says that is what rules us, right? We are opposed to God. We want our independence from Him. For the Christian, what God's Word says is it is a constant fight, and God is removing the pollution of the flesh from us until we are one day redeemed for good in all of eternity with our, in the new heavens and the new earth in our complete new bodies, okay? And what these super apostles are saying is, Paul, he doesn't really look much like a Christian. Paul's saying, that's the accusation against me. What's his response? How does he respond at the outset of this letter to not only the super apostles, but to this church who is actually drinking the, the Kool-Aid, who's believing it, who, uh, at least in 1 Corinthians, we see have turned against Paul? How does he start? Verse 1. Myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Oftentimes when I use electronic communication, text, email, when I know my tone or, you know, my posture towards that person may be misinterpreted, I will start it off by saying, know that I write this, I'm not angry, I'm, I'm, I love you, you know, I will put before it, this is how I feel. Because you can misinterpret things that are on a page or on a screen, can't you? And what Paul is saying is, as I write these things, I'm writing it in meekness and gentleness. Isn't that an interesting response under attack and when war has been waged against him? Meekness means mild and gentle friendliness. It's opposite of briskness and sudden anger. Gentleness is to be reasonable or fair. And it's the very term, gentleness, that Jesus used to describe his own heart in Matthew 11 where he says, take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is Jesus' own heart towards us. So what Paul is saying is, is I don't need to respond and attack. In fact, I am relying upon the one who has power, and because that power stands behind me, and I can't be separated from it, I can respond in gentleness and meekness. I don't have to have a power grab back at you. This is President's Day at New Life Dresher, and so I'm going to use a phrase by President Theodore Roosevelt uh, that sounds a little bit like this, where he, uh, his form of foreign diplomacy or foreign policy was, speak softly and carry a big stick. Have you heard that in your history classes or whatnot? What this means is, is that Theodore Roosevelt said, hey, we want to speak softly in the world around us. We want to uh, be more gentle and humble as we talk to others. But to carry a big stick back then usually meant a military, and it usually meant a navy. And he'd say, but it's important to have this big military behind us so that people will take us seriously as we're speaking softly. Three of the five pillars is have a serious military capability to make opponents pay close attention, to act justly towards other nations, to be willing to allow adversaries to save face and defeat, and... Teddy Roosevelt did this, in theory, in Venezuela and the Panama Canal. But here's where illustrations fall short, is even that 
you know, many of us, especially living in the 21st century, look back on that and say, that was an abuse of power, so on and so forth. So, so let's abandon how we might be judging Teddy Roosevelt's formal, uh, uh, foreign policy and just look at it as it is. And what I'm trying to get across is that Paul is saying, I can speak softly and gently and with meekness because I know there's a big stick that God himself holds the power and it's benevolent and it's good and it's just, and I don't have to do the power grab and get back at these super apostles. I hear what I read in uh, Romans 8.31, where he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that nothing else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What Paul is essentially saying is, if we believe the gospel, if we truly believe the grace that is towards us, we will lose the felt need to attack even when war is waged against us. That is a Christian worldview. Friends, our desire to attack back and seek retribution is often indicative of some form of disbelief about God. We lash out again and again to regain the false sense of security that that attack has taken away, and we fail to trust that nothing can separate us from God. Oftentimes we attack because, uh, you know, instead of having a navy behind us in God's power, we look back and we see a tub full of rubber duckies, right? We're relying on our own power and our own strength, and we do whatever we can to regain the comfort and control that we've lost So maybe here's an exercise. How can we find what we have placed our trust in, what we are relying on for power? I would say follow the trails of your anger and your own attack and let it reveal what we have placed our hope in. And here's a pro tip, and this is something I found in my own life, is we can often find that thread by looking at our recommendations of who to follow on social media. Yeah. The algorithm knows. (laughs) It points us to the thing that we're placing our hope and our trust in. It points us to the reasons behind some of our anger. Here's the second point. What war should we then wage? What war does Paul rage or wage? Pick up with me in verses 3 to 6. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. All right, so so what does Paul tell us about the wars that he's actually waging? If it's not against the super apostles, where is he fighting? Where is he fighting? Well, first of all, in verse 3, he's saying, yeah, I'm in the flesh, right? I've got to wear this stuff until uh, I am, am called to be with my Savior, but I am not waging my war out of my flesh. He's saying, and he's saying this, and I'm saying this because if you read the rest of Paul's letters, the number one way he defines a Christian is as being in Christ. And so I'm superimposing this, but I think I have good reason to. Paul is essentially saying, I am waging this war not out of my flesh, but out of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so first of all, we see him redefine who the enemy actually is. In verse 4, he says, we use these weapons to destroy 
strongholds. And he defines these strongholds as arguments in verse 5, arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Strongholds are fortresses. The only time this term is used in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the idea is a fortress fortified by gates and, and defenses. If uh, you read the Hunger Games or watched the movies, think the Capitol where the enemy, President Snow, is in the President's mansion, and the Capitol all the way up to the mansion is full of these pods that's going to defend them against the rebels, right, advancing against them. That's a stronghold. And what Paul is saying is, is the energy that I will put, and I would argue as followers of Christ, the energy we should put in waging war is against these strongholds. And this stronghold he actually defines as intellectual ones, one that is employed for the rejection of the gospel, any argument against the knowledge of God. Isn't it interesting, his response? Does he take to the blogs and Twitter and Facebook and Insta and, and, and whatever platform he could find and wage war against the super apostles? No. He's saying, in fact, what, what is actually uh, taking them off track is a lack of the true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's where I'm going to wage my war. They are turning you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is where I am going to wage my war. We see him say this in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Please hear this again. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and in the heavenly places. Here is one of the main problems, I think, even in the church, is that we have begun to adopt worldviews that do not have Christ at the center as our primary worldviews. We have begun to adopt as our primary worldview worldviews that do not have Christ at the center. And I would just say this any worldview that doesn't have Jesus Christ at the center is dangerous. And in our day and age, that can mean political ideology. That can mean social justice ideology. If Christ is not at the center, there is a danger. Now, when I say danger, there is a spectrum of danger, right? There's a continuum. There's chainsaw danger and there's serial killer danger, all right? Chainsaws are dangerous, but it doesn't mean we don't use them. We don't engage with them, right? If we don't, in Pennsylvania, you would never be able to drive around because every month all the trees in the neighborhood get blown down. So you need to know how to engage with a chainsaw, but you need to know how to use it properly. You need to know how to stop using it at the right time. Now, the serial killer danger are things that we must utterly reject, and those are philosophies that actually teach against God himself and the gospel of grace. I'll let you wrestle right now with the ideology that you uh, are tinkering with and that may be becoming your worldview as to where on that spectrum it may be. But I think Scott Sauls gives us a good danger of how good things can become God things, and it's a bad thing. He says this, social justice without Jesus can be more Darwinian than just. Fighting against unjust power only to assume and assert unjust power. Social justice with Jesus is truly just. It seeks not to assert power, but to sacrificially use power to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Christian worldview 
of social justice. It's not just a power swing, right? It's often what we see. The other thing that we see here from Paul is the weaponry that he uses. Now remember, the weaponry that the super apostles used was impressive presence, exceptional speaking ability, self-commendation, Jewish pedigree, the experience of visions and revelations, the performance of signs and wonders in an authoritarian manner. Well, Paul upends all of that in verse 4. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. And we don't have time to go there today, but if you want a good study on what these weapons actually are, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 14 and following unpack the weapons of the Christian warfare. It's righteousness. You know, a righteous life. If you want to know what a righteous life, it's a life that honors God. And in order to understand that, we must read and soak in His Word. And we will read words like slow to speak, quiet answers, loving our enemy. Friends, is that the narrative we hear? Are those the weapons of the warfare that we see waged in our culture today? The other weapons of the warfare, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And that, those are not our default weapons, are they? It's usually the blog. It's usually Facebook. It's usually just mad and manipulation and whatever that may be. I'm going to read Scott Sauls one more time. I feel like this man is a prophet in our day. His book he just released is called A Quiet Answer. And he's talking about what to do and how Christians should engage in an us-versus-them culture. He says this. He says, Gospel culture attacks problems and bad ideas, and harmful behavior, and wrong beliefs, and toxic systems, and self-entitlement, and abuse, and racism, sexism, divisive partisanism, loveless conservatism, graceless liberalism, cancel culture, which that is the weapon of our day, attacks people, not problems. The gospel is greater than cancel. Do we attack people, or are we attacking problems? Don't misread Paul. He's not saying Christians should just get on our knee in a back room somewhere all day long and that's it. Now, go read Romans 12. The gospel calls us to action. But actually, our primary weapon should probably be on our knees and in God's word. Cancel culture, by the way, is just a rehashing of the ad hominem argument or fallacy, right? There's still nothing new under the sun. God's word calls us to some something different. All right, let me touch on this real fast. Verse 5. Paul says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. If we're keeping with the military stronghold motif that we read just a couple of words earlier, what Paul is basically saying is this. Once the gospel penetrates that stronghold, the most foolish thing we could do is let all of the enemy still run around in that stronghold. He's saying every thought in my mind, in my heart, in your mind, and your heart, if you are following Christ, should be taken captive. Once the gospel overruns that fortress, we take it captive and bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Friends, 
in my own heart in this pandemic where I'm just prone to sit there and just read news and hear bad reports and, and want to respond and I miss interacting with people, so I'm going to do it on social media. I, I often fail to take every thought captive. Are we taking our thoughts and our responses captive? Are we bringing them under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Friends, this week, as thoughts enter your mind, as information hits your radar, evaluate it by God's word. Write it down and say, I'm going to go search God's word and figure out what that might have to say to what I just read or how I'm getting ready to respond. And if you don't know where to start, go to esv.org and do a quick word study. See if something pops up there. Or better yet, and probably more importantly, call another brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm struggling with what I just read. How does this align with God's word? I'm struggling with how to respond. How do you think I can respond in a godly way? And take each other to his word in prayer and do battle with the weapons that he's given to us. Let me conclude with this. Jesus had war unimaginable waged against him at the cross so that nothing can separate those who call on him by faith from his love. Jesus declared war against sin and Satan and defeated them in the resurrection and will one day utterly defeat them when he returns. That is the gospel. And if we believe that gospel, we can respond to wars waged against us with meekness and gentleness rather than fearful power grabs. If we believe that gospel, we can wage war against the real enemy rather than one another and use spiritual weapons that will prevent us from leaving our lives, our relationships, and our souls nuclear wastelands. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, this one weighed more heavily on me than many other sermons, both at a heart level and how I'm responding, the wars I want to wage, how you reveal in my heart how I use false weapons of our world. Lord, I believe this understanding of the gospel or the lack thereof is actually something that is is destroying the church, is weaving its way into the fabric of our church. And Lord, even though we know that the gates of hell will never prevail against your church, I pray that you will make us a place and a people who are sobered and encouraged by the hope of the power that is towards us in you. But Lord, that we would wake up to some of the dangerous thinking that we've given ourselves to. Lord, a worldview without you at the center tells us that our enemy is something different than sin and that our Savior is something different than Jesus. And that is a dangerous lie. Protect us from that. Make us a church that responds differently in a world at war. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.